Good morning, everyone. Um, if, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Elizabeth, and I lead the college ministry here at Citizens. And today I have the privilege of preaching our last sermon in the series that we've been doing the last month and a half or so on the book of Ruth. Um, so we're finally at chapter four, the final chapter in the book of Ruth. Um, but before we jump into the text, I want to just refresh us of where we've been through on this journey through the story. So in chapter one, Naomi and Ruth travel to Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown. So if you recall, Naomi is the older widow. She loses her husband and sons in the beginning of the story. Ruth is her daughter-in-law, um, who insists on going with her, even though Ruth is from Moab, Moab a totally different nation. Um, and so these two widows, who are very vulnerable in society, uh, are trying to survive together. But in chapter 2, we see that God is looking out for them, because um, Ruth happens upon the field of Boaz who's not only a rich, godly, generous man, but also happens to be a close relative of Naomi's husband. He's what is called a kinsman redeemer, which is a close relative with legal power to help and protect um, his relatives. So in chapter three, Naomi tells Ruth she should ask Boaz to marry her, a little unconventional, but if Boaz marries Ruth, he would provide for them financially, he would extend protection and honor over them, and he would be able to continue the line of Naomi's husband and sons who died um, because his first son with Ruth would be counted as Malon's son, which is Ruth's husband who has passed away. So in Ruth 3, Ruth dresses up, puts on some perfume, and sneaks onto Boaz's threshing floor in the middle of the night and proposes. And Boaz seems willing. But there's a slight wrinkle to the plan, because apparently there's a closer relative that Boaz could choose, uh, closer relative than Boaz, who could choose to marry Ruth. Uh, so the chapter three ends with this uncertainty, and yet Naomi has this confident proclamation, Boaz will certainly take care of this matter as soon as possible, which brings us to Ruth four. So if you'd like to open your Bibles or your Bible apps, I'm gonna be reading from the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version. Ruth 4. No sooner had Boaz gone up to the gate, which is the public gathering place, and sat down there, than the next of kin, or kinsman redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came passing by. So Boaz said, come over, friend, sit down here. And he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. He then said to the next of kin, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of lands that belong to our kinsman, Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me so that I may know. For there is no one prior to you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you acquire the field from the hand of Naomi, you are also acquiring Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead man, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance. At this, the next of kin said, I cannot redeem it for myself without damaging my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one took off a sandal and gave it to the other. This was the manner of attesting in Israel. So their form of a contract is handing a sandal to the other person. So when the next of kin said to Boaz, acquire it for yourself, he took off his sandal. 
Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have acquired from the hands of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malan. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of Malan, to be my wife, to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance, in order that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his kindred and from the gate of his native place. Today you are witnesses. Then all the people who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you produce children in Ephrathah and bestow a name in Bethlehem. And through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when they came together, the Lord made her conceive, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without next of kin, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the descendants of Perez. Perez became the father of Hezron, Hezron of Ram, Ram of Aminadab, Aminadab of Nashan, Nashan of Salmon, Salmon of Boaz, Boaz of Obed, Obed of Jesse, and Jesse of David. So here in chapter four, a lot of cultural stuff is going on, but basically we get this happy ending to the story, right? Ruth and Boaz get married. The other closer relative is easily swept to the side. They have a son, the blessing most prized in that culture. And Naomi, who lost everything at the beginning of the story, is restored. And then at the very end of the book, we find out that Ruth and Boaz's baby is actually part of a royal lineage, the line of King David, the most revered king in Israel's history. Quite an ending. Perhaps some of us expect this happy ending and easily affirm it. We say a hearty amen to it because we know that God is good and we believe his goodness is eventually displayed in our lives. Tough times may come, but they will always end and blessing will follow. But perhaps others of us are wary of this ending. Perhaps to some of us this ending seems more like a fairy tale than real life. As Jason was just alluding to as we went through our time of lament, the world is dark and broken, and our lives are messy. Perhaps our problems and the world's problems don't seem to be resolved so neatly and perfectly as they are in this story. To be honest, I felt a little wary as I was preparing to preach on this passage because it's very easy and quite tempting, I think, to talk about happy endings in a simplistic way, to idolize happiness and blessing in a way that distracts from God rather than honors him. There can be a fine line between having faith that God can do anything and feeling entitled to certain kinds of blessing. Are we all entitled to happy endings in our lives? God is a God of love, goodness, and joy, but does that mean that we are entitled to a happy ending or to our version of a happy ending? Or perhaps the better question is, is our version of a happy ending aligned with God's vision of happiness and wholeness? What constitutes a truly happy ending? 
You know, it's interesting to me that this book of Ruth is often characterized as a love story, an ideal romance, because I actually think that says more about us as readers than about the story itself. The story does end with a marriage, but is romance really at the center of the story? If you look at the text, this book actually begins and ends with Naomi, the mother-in-law, a destitute widow, a woman who loses everything at the beginning of the story. And here at the end of the story, we come back to Naomi. She's the person who's celebrated. After verse 13, Boaz and Ruth fade into the background, and the women of the town celebrate with Naomi. In chapter one, Naomi declared that she was too old to have a son, that that was something that would be impossible for her. But here at the end of the story, God does what she proclaimed was impossible. God gives Naomi a son through Boaz and Ruth. And she comes to recognize that God has blessed her with a blessing she never even thought to ask for or imagine. Ruth, the daughter-in-law that has turned out to be better than seven sons. If anything, I actually think Naomi and Ruth's relationship is at the center of the story, because the text never talks about whether or not Ruth loves Boaz, but it does describe and celebrate Ruth's love for Naomi. The women here say in chapter four, God has given you a daughter-in-law better than seven sons, a daughter-in-law who loves you. Ruth's speech to Naomi in chapter one is the most passionate speech in this book, and one of the most passionate speeches in the entire Bible. Do not tell me to leave you, Ruth says. Where you go, I will go. So I think it's interesting that many people focus on the relationship between Boaz and Ruth, because I think that's telling about our culture. We tend to idolize and idealize romance. Many people think of romance as the ultimate kind of love. Many of us believe that being in a romantic relationship is the ultimate happiness. But while romantic love can be beautiful and wondrous, I think God's, God's vision of happiness is actually bigger. To be honest, certain parts of the story do fit some K-drama romance cliches. There's a rich guy who's drawn to a poor girl and saves her. There's a meddling mother-in-law involved. There's a surprising scandalous scene at night in chapter three, and yet nothing truly scandalous happens. It's very chaste and modest and understated. At the end, they turn out to be related to royalty. Um, really, they could make this into a Korean drama, or maybe they already have, I'm not sure. Um, but even so, when I read the story for what it is, without the assumption that romance is at the, at the center, I don't find romance, certainly not our idealized version of romance, at the center, but something else. Because even when Boaz marries Ruth, he's not just marrying a woman to whom he's attracted. He is stepping in to redeem a relative. There's something bigger at stake and at play. And Boaz is very much aware of this. So Boaz is a God-fearing, godly man. We see this in chapter two, simply in the way he greets his workers in the field. He says, the Lord be with you. And the workers respond, the Lord bless you. Boaz has created this culture uh, in his field that acknowledges God. Boaz is someone whose acknowledgement of God is central to his life, woven into his daily habits and practices. And I believe this also influences the way that Boaz sees Ruth. When Ruth first appears in Boaz's field, he notices. And I believe this is because Boaz is someone who pays attention to the people around him, even to the poor people who come to pick up the leftover grain in his fields. 
And when Boaz hears about Ruth from his foreman, he's impressed by her devotion to her mother-in-law, by her diligence in working hard all day to provide for her. When Boaz looks at Ruth, he sees her differently than most of the Israelites do. Most of the people see her as Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the outsider, Ruth the widow. They are probably wary of associating with her. They likely feel hostility towards her because of their history with Moab. But when Boaz looks at Ruth, her ethnicity, her immigrant status, her status as a young widow, don't prompt him to pull away, but rather cause him to draw close. Because he recognizes her as someone who is both admirable and in need. Like Boaz, Ruth has godly, admirable character. But unlike Boaz, she's very much vulnerable and powerless in society. She is in need. I think many of us aren't used to thinking of these qualities as going together, having admirable character and being in need. We think being an admirable person means being strong and self-sufficient. We think that if you are strong, then you are not in need of help. But Ruth is a clear example of someone who is both. Ruth is a strong, persistent person. She knows who she is. She's tenacious, bold, and loyal. She's willing to leave her whole world behind to follow her mother-in-law to a foreign land out of love. She's willing to go out into some stranger's field and work hard all day at great risk to herself to be the provider of her household. But the reality of her situation is she's also vulnerable. She doesn't have power in society. She's a woman, she's a widow, and she's an ethnic minority from a people group looked down on in this community. She's very little means of providing for herself. She could easily be taken advantage of in the fields, and it's likely no one would step up to defend her. She could use a protector. So I believe Boaz is drawn to Ruth for two reasons. He simultaneously admires her character, and he sees that she's in need. So he says, stay and reap here on my land, my daughter. I've ordered my men to protect you. He starts looking out for Ruth. He admires her, but he also recognizes that she needs an ally, she and her mother-in-law. He never fails to take Naomi into consideration as well, always sending extra grain for her. So in chapter three, when Boaz awakes to find Ruth at his feet in the middle of the night, proposing marriage, he seems drawn to her once again for both of these reasons. Boaz admires that even in this proposal, Ruth is thinking of her mother-in-law. She's proposing to her mother-in-law's close relative, a kinsman redeemer. Only a kinsman redeemer has the ability to buy Naomi's land from her, because by law it has to stay in the family. And only a kinsman redeemer has the ability to continue Naomi's line by marrying Ruth. So Boaz admires Ruth's motivation in choosing him. But he also heartily agrees to her plan because he knows that she and Naomi are in need. It would help them greatly if a male from their clan would step up to marry Ruth and incorporate them back into the community. But who would be willing to marry a Moabite? Boaz says yes. He steps up. And Boaz's reaction to Ruth's proposal is set in stark contrast with the other kinsman redeemer, the closer relative that we encounter in the beginning of chapter 4. This other man is not given a name. Uh, The way the Hebrew is written tells us that the characters in the book know the man's name, but his name is purposely omitted from the story because he's that unimportant. The text basically refers to him as so-and-so or Mr. X. 
So Mr. X says he is more than willing to step up and buy Naomi's land from her, which will help her a great deal financially, also probably benefit him. But when Boaz mentions Ruth, the Moabite, as part of the deal, Mr. X immediately backs off. Oh, no, 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 that would damage my own inheritance, he says. He uses very strong language. This word damage can also be translated destroy, annihilate, exterminate. Basically, he says that could ruin my inheritance. Mr. X sees Ruth as a liability, a burden, someone who could harm his reputation, someone he is not willing to embrace as family. Whereas Boaz sees Ruth as admirable, praiseworthy, someone he would love to embrace. Her needs and her differences don't repel him. He is willing to embrace her differences and prioritize her needs over the potential cost to himself. Boaz sees Ruth as more than an outsider, more than a burden, more than someone to pity. He sees her as someone worthy of attention, worthy of care, and worthy of embrace. You know, when you're an outsider, often you need just one person to give you that in in order to find belonging. Someone who's connected, someone who's well-respected or well-liked. So I usually hate visiting new churches by myself. Um, maybe I shouldn't admit this, but I just find it so awkward and isolating and often painful. Even when there are friendly people smiling at me at the door or shaking hands with me during greeting time, I just feel so alone because no one at this new church really knows me. No one really cares about me. I feel anonymous, unseen, and very much on the outside. But when I visit a new church where I have just one friend, or when just one person takes the time to really ask me about myself and my story, the whole experience is different. I can instantly feel at home, feel belonging, feel connected. Suddenly, I know someone who can introduce me to others, answer my questions, invite me personally to events. It's just the difference of one person who cares about me. Boaz is that in for Ruth. He truly cares about her. He knows her as more than her ethnicity or marital status. He sees her. And that's why it is so beautiful that he's the one who marries her, not some random Mr. X. But not only is Boaz's care beautiful, it's impactful. The way Boaz sees and embraces Ruth changes the way the whole community comes to see and embrace her. You know, you might have noticed that Ruth approaches Boaz in chapter 3 under the cover of darkness. She goes to him in the middle of the night because in case things don't go well, she needs to protect herself from public shame and disgrace if she's rejected. She's vulnerable in society, so she has to use roundabout methods to assert herself. But here in chapter 4, Boaz brings the matter into the daylight, into the center of the public eye. His standing in society allows him to do that, and he uses that privilege to draw Ruth into the public eye in an honorable way. He publicly proclaims to everyone in the town that he is marrying Ruth, that this marriage is honorable because it redeems Naomi and will continue her family line that has died. And Boaz unashamedly clarifies that he is marrying Ruth the Moabite. Often this term, Ruth the Moabite, has been a label that marks Ruth as an outsider. It's, like, it's kind of like when you go to a new church and they give you a name tag to stick on your shirt and you're the only person wearing a name tag in the whole room. I don't know, maybe churches don't do this anymore, but this has definitely happened to me. And I understand that the heart behind it is to make people aware that um, you're a newcomer, they should welcome you, to help them learn your name. But it basically also brands you as an outsider. 
people immediately see was, oh, you're Elizabeth, the newcomer. Similarly, Ruth has been known as Ruth, the Moabite, i.e. Ruth, the outsider, through most of the story. But here, Boaz redeems this term. Because by saying, I am marrying Ruth, the Moabite, Boaz makes clear that he is unashamed of Ruth's nationality. He's accepting all of who Ruth is. He is proud to tie himself in the most intimate way to this ethnic outsider. Ruth is not only a widow, she's not only poor, she's a Moabite. And Boaz publicly says yes to her. Which leads to the whole community following suit and embracing Ruth. They bless the marriage and they bless Ruth. If you look back at the text, they pray that God would make Ruth into a great mother of their nation in the footsteps of Rachel and Leah. If you recall, Rachel and Leah were Jacob's wives, and their sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is an incredible blessing to speak over an outsider, a foreigner, to pray that she would become one of the mothers of their nation. It shows that the people are fully embracing Ruth as their own, as part of them. And the really beautiful thing is that God answers their prayer. Ruth becomes one of the most well-known, significant mothers of Israel. And this blessing turns out to be not just something that benefits Ruth, but that benefits the entire community, the entire nation, and the entire world. Maybe that seems like a big statement, but I'm actually not exaggerating. Because if we look at the end of Ruth, we find this genealogy. And maybe it seemed a little jarring when I was reading it a minute ago. This person fathered this person, this person's this person's father. It's all these like random names that we've never heard of. But actually this genealogy provides a very powerful ending and framing of the story. Some of you may recall way back like six weeks ago when we talked about it, but the very first words in the book of Ruth are, in the days when the judges ruled. We start this book in the time of the judges. It's a time of political instability and fracturing amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe does its own thing. Each town does its own thing. Each person does what is right in their own eyes. That's the time of the judges. The book ends, however, with King David, the king who will unite all the tribes of Israel, who unites them under Yahweh as the Lord of their nation. So this genealogy points to a future hope that the characters in the story don't even realize they're participating in. Not only is Ruth healed from her barrenness, not only does she become a mother, not only does she bring restoration to her mother-in-law's family, but she gives birth to the ancestor of the king who's going to unify the people and draw them closer to God. Not only that, God makes a promise to this king, to King David. God says, your descendant will one day establish an eternal, everlasting, perfect reign. That promised descendant is referred to as the Messiah, the, the son of David. The end of Ruth not only points to King David, but beyond him to the Messiah, who turns out to not only be Israel's savior, but the savior of the entire world. If you look at the very first verses of the entire New Testament in the book of Matthew, you'll find a genealogy very similar to this genealogy in Ruth. Matthew's genealogy is a little longer, though, because first, Matthew includes three women in his genealogy, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, all foreign Gentile women grafted into the people of God, all foreshadowing the fact that the people of God is about to expand and embrace all nations just as Boaz and his town embrace Ruth in Ruth 4. Matthew's genealogy is also longer because it goes all the way back to Abraham, through Perez, who's mentioned here, 
through David and then goes all the way to Jesus, the one who God promised would come. Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, king of kings. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the same town that comes to embrace Ruth here in Ruth 4. Jesus comes into Bethlehem and into Israel, and the people expect redemption. They expect a happy ending, like this happy ending here in Ruth 4. By Jesus' time, Israel has become an outsider in their own land. They're subject to the Romans. They're being oppressed, and they expect the Messiah to come and exalt them, to restore them, to elevate them publicly. But that's not what happens. Instead, Jesus himself lives as an outsider. He antagonizes the religious leaders of the community who begin to seek for ways to kill him. He roams from place to place, teaching, healing, doing miracles without a permanent residence. And then he allows himself to be crucified by the Romans. Why? Why would Jesus choose such a life and such a death? Why didn't he come triumphantly and bring vindication to his oppressed people? Isn't that what Ruth 4 points to, the happy ending that is coming for the nation of Israel? The people had been waiting for generations and generations, suffering under different various violent rulers, waiting for their happy, triumphant ending. Instead, they get a savior who chooses to empathize with the weak to draw close to the marginalized, to expose the corruption of the powerful. A savior who showed up and exposed the darkness that was inside all of us by allowing what was inside of humanity to run its natural course. We killed him, publicly humiliated him, and abandoned him. Jesus shows us there's something that needs to come before the happy ending. Truth, reckoning, accountability. And yet, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus did all this, suffered all of that for the joy set before him. He did it for joy. Jesus saw the happy ending that was beyond the ending, a happy ending that included all of us. So Ruth 4 turns out not only to foreshadow the coming of the Messiah, but to foreshadow the fact that the Messiah's life and death will be all about embracing outsiders, about seeing those who no one else values, lepers, paralytics, children, women, about seeing those very people as worthy of attention, worthy of love, worthy of embrace. God's happy ending is the gathering in of those who have been excluded, the redemption and embrace of those who have been deemed not good enough. God's happy ending is a family of misfits coming together as one. You know, I actually think there's a good reason, or an important reason, that we idolize romance. It's because we all have this deep, deep desire to be wanted, to be accepted, to be known, loved, valued, and seen. It's a desire we all have, a need we all have. And God says, I see you, I love you, and I embrace you as part of my family. Come and enjoy, come and belong. God invites us into a family, a community, a place of belonging, acceptance, and love. Because Jesus didn't just die and resurrect for us as individuals. He didn't want to just give us a one-on-one relationship. He came to redeem a family, a people into whom he invited all those who had been disinvited. He came to create a body of many diverse parts, a community that only makes sense with all the members present. 
You know, we actually live in a time very similar to Ruth's time in a lot of ways, similar to the time of the judges. Because our time is also a time of division and fracturing. It's a time when people stay in their separate tribes, a time when each person lives as they see fit. But God is calling us to see differently and to live differently. A few nights ago, um, I actually had this dream. And in the dream, I was sitting around with the other citizen staff, and we were just working on our individual projects, which is similar to real life, because our office is just one big open space. And then suddenly one person started singing a worship song. And one by one, we all joined in. And we were singing together the same words, a familiar song that we all knew. But each person was singing a different line, a different harmony. And all the harmonies were interweaving together. If you're a musician, you'll know that that kind of intricate, layered music making can only work when you're all listening closely to each other, making space for each other's voices. And in the dream, I started weeping because the presence of God was so palpable. I feel like that is a picture, a metaphor of what God invites us into as a church, as a community, as his family. All of us coming together as we are, bringing our differences, our different perspectives, personalities, passions, and voices, all listening to each other and making space for each other and working together. And in that conversation, in that interaction, all worshiping the same God. God at the center. God magnified as we listen to one another, make space for each other, and each contribute our voice. So as we go out from this place today, may we remember and live into Jesus' tender acceptance of us, his joyful, proud acceptance of us. And may that acceptance teach us how to see and embrace those around us. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. I pray that you would do something that only you can do, which is to open our spiritual eyes, open our ears, to really see and to really hear, to see you, to hear your voice, and also to see the people around us people who we may think we know, but we're judging by their outward appearance, people we don't know at all and haven't felt any interest in knowing, pray, God, that you would open our eyes to see with your eyes, with your heart. I thank you, God, that your love is so expansive, that it's so personal and so intimate, and it finds us wherever we are, and it knows us, so intimately, and yet it also expands outward. And I just pray, God, that you would invite us and draw us and lead us deeper and deeper into that love, into what it means to know you, to truly be embraced by you, that we may also be able to embrace others in return. I pray all of these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.